Venture X from Capital One is the travel card for people always asking, where next? You earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights booked through Capital One Travel and 2x miles on everything else you buy with Venture X. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Hey guys, LD here and TJ with a small parental warning. The following program contains mature content, including, but not limited to, mature quotes, drug use, violence, suggestive situations, and and law-breaking gun, loving, running with scissors, and just about everything your mother ever told you not to do. Which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. How are you doing, TJ? Eh, hanging in there. I mean, we're, this is this is a, a whole new weird for us, and so we're trying a couple different things to try to get the audio good. So hopefully this one will be a little bit better quality than our last episode, which I don't think was terrible quality, but it was definitely a drop in what we usually produce, so we're sorry. Yeah. It's our new normal, though. Gotta do what we gotta do. Yeah. So anything new? Because I actually haven't physically seen you except for the 30 seconds to give you the equipment. Anything new? Nope. Quarantine. Quarantine. Yeah. But you're still working, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See? Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, there's a lot. There's so much shuffling happening right now. I can imagine like every day is a new adventure for you, right? Yeah. It's definitely uh, got me pretty stressed. I can imagine. The changes are constant, so. Well, maybe I can relieve a little stress with the story that I'm telling today. Give it a shot. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about Kurt Cobain, and I actually kind of threw an audible in the middle of it because uh, last week I said that we were going to be doing an entire episode on the movies and conspiracy theories and things like that, and then I started tackling Kurt's life and... Uh, it's a way bigger than I thought it was and had a lot more crazy. This guy lived the rock and roll lifestyle. So next week is actually going to be covering his death. And then we've got some special things that we've got for you guys. So it, it's going to be hopefully pretty interesting. So jumping right into the life of Kurt Cobain. Kurt Donald Cobain was born on the 12th of February, 1967 at the Gray Harbor Community Hospital that overlooked Aberdeen, Washington. His parents were Don Cobain, an auto mechanic, and Wendy, a homemaker. When Kurt was born, his 21-year-old father Don worked at a Chevron station in Holcomb, and I hope I'm saying that right, as a mechanic. Uh, He was handsome and athletic, but he actually had a flat top haircut and Buddy Holly-style glasses, and so he had like this super geekiness about him. And Kurt's mom was a 19-year-old Wendy, in contrast, she was actually a classic beauty, and she dressed a bit like Marsha Brady. And the town that he lived in was like, kind of like the town I grew up in. It was an industry town, basically stuck in the 50s, and that's my hometown to this day. It's still kind of stuck in the 50s. So they had met in high school where Wendy had the nickname Breeze, which I think is a cool nickname. Yeah, the previous cool. June. Yeah, it's a cute little nickname. Breeze. She's breezy. The previous June, just weeks before their high school graduation... Wendy had become pregnant, and so Don borrowed his father's car, and they traveled to Idaho so that they could get married without parental consent. So, kind of scandalous already. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that happens a lot. Which, it's weird because she was 19 and Kurt was 21, so I'm wondering what the age of consent was, like where you didn't need, you didn't need parental consent for marriage, because they seem like they're both adults. Well, for him, yes, but maybe for her. Maybe. I don't know. Laws are weird. In May 1968, when Kurt was 15 months old, Wendy's 14-year-old sister, Mary, and that's spelled M-A-R-I, so I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and it's not Mari, so forgive me if I'm going to butcher that, but she wrote a paper about her nephew in her home at class. His mother takes care of him, uh, so this is a quote. His mother takes care of him most of the time. She shows her affection by holding him and giving him praise when he deserves it, 
and by taking part in many of his activities. He responds to his father in that when he sees his father, he smiles and he likes for his dad to hold him. He makes his wants known by yelling loudly at first and then crying if the first technique doesn't work, Mary recorded. His favorite game was peekaboo and his first tooth appeared at eight months and his first words were Coco, oh, mama, dada, ball, toast, bye-bye, hi, baby, me, love, hot dog, and kitty. <laughs> All right, then. All right, then. Yeah. Well, what was your first word? I don't know. You don't know your first word? No. Who knows see, that? Mine was mama, and then my second word was tabby, which was my brother. And then I, I started saying getty, because apparently, even as a baby, I love spaghetti. And that's never changed. Fair enough. <laughs> I have no idea where mine were, was. You should ask. That's like important. <laughs> yeah, guess. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Mary listed his favorite toys as a harmonica, a drum, uh, basketball, cars, trucks, blocks, and uh, TVs and telephones. And it's like standard kid toys. Although harmonica, I don't know many children that like the harmonica. Uh, when Wendy was a mindful mother reading books on learning, buying flashcards, and aided by her brothers and sisters, making sure that Kirk got the proper care. The entire family joined in the celebration of this child, and Kirk flourished with the intention. And I watched a great film that's on HBO. So if you have HBO, check it out. It's called Montage of Heck, but I actually think it's also on YouTube and possibly even Prime. And they do a really good job of like telling Kurt's life story. And so you get these this rare glimpse into home videos of Kurt, and it's really just kind of cool. But he was the first child in this family, and so everybody doted on him. Everybody paid attention to him. All right. I can't even put into words the joy and the life that he brought into our family remembers Mary. By his second Christmas, Kurt was already showing an interest in music. Kurt's mother's side of the family was very musical. Wendy's older brother Chuck was in a band called the Beachcombers, and Mary played the guitar, and great uncle Gilbert had a career as an Irish tenor and even appeared oh, in the cool. movie. The, yeah, like an Irish tenor. I don't know what an Irish tenor is, but that just sounds cool. Even appearing in the movie The King of Jazz. Not long after he turned to, he actually created an imaginary friend called Boda. So it's like Buddha with a O. So Boda. The book... Rock and Roll Book of the Dead by David Comfort says that during this time, he believed that he was an alien sent from another planet to study Earthlings. Amused by his fantasy <laughs> okay. at first. Yeah. <laughs> I told you, it, start, it, it starts out crazy and, and gets crazier. All right, then. I mean, I, uh, I'm not really surprised, but, you know, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's two. I mean, that's kind of what two-year-old knows about aliens. I don't know if the family talks about it or something or some TV show or whatever. But, I mean, I'm just saying in general, I'm not surprised that he was kind of an odd duck. Like, Yeah. You know. Oh, but didn't we talk about this in the last one where it's the UFO, Washington is the UFO capital of the, the, the country? Yeah. So he's probably exposed to it all over the place. People talking about it and whatever. So, you know. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. So his parents were actually amused by this at first, and they would go so far as to set a table for Boda, but they became concerned about his attachment to this phantom pal. So when his uncle was sent to Vietnam, Kurt was told that Boda had been drafted too, but Kurt didn't completely buy the story. When he was three, he was playing with his aunt's tape machine that had been set to Echo. You remember those old tape machines and you could set it to do different audio things like echoes and trail offs and stuff like that kind of well it was set to echo and kurt heard that echo and asked who is that voice talking to me boda boda and uh we'll find out this is not the last time that boda makes an appearance but i don't think we cover him anymore in this episode so that should tell you something all right then in september 1969 when when kurt was two and a half don and wendy bought their first home on East First Street in Aberdeen. It was two-story, 1,000 square foot, and it had a yard and a garage. And, and this is why I put it in. You know how much they paid for this house? No. $7,950. Okay. Not you a lot. Get, no. You can't, get, you can't get a house for that now. You can't get a Honda CRV for that. You can't get a Honda Accord for that. 
Nope. It was built in 1923, and it was in a location that had been given the derogatory nickname of Felony Flats. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That tells you how great the, the neighborhood was. Maybe that's why the house was so cheap. Perhaps. When he was three, his sister Kimberly was born. She looked, even as an infant, remarkably like Kurt, where she had blue eyes, blonde hair. And when Kim was brought home from the hospital, Kurt insisted on carrying her inside the house. He loved her so much, remembered his father. And at first, they were darling together. Their three-year age gap was ideal because her care became one of Kurt's main topics of conversation. <laughs> this marked the beginning of a personality trait that will stick with Kurt for the rest of his life, where he was sensitive to the needs and pains of others, and at times overly so. So he would take care of other people before he took care of himself. In 1972, Kurt began kindergarten at Robert Gray Elementary, just three blocks north of his house. Wendy walked him to the school on the first day, but after that, he was on his own. Could you imagine? He's four, and he's walking like walking himself to school. Well, if the school's not that far away, and it's a safe neighborhood or a decent neighborhood, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I just, it's to think about a four-year-old being, like, on their own. I don't know. Usually, you have to be five to start kindergarten. But still, I mean, if it's not that far. Yeah. He was well known to his teachers as a precocious, inquisitive child with a Snoopy lunchbox. On his report card yet that year, his teachers wrote that he was a really good student. He was not shy. And when a bear cub was brought in for show and tell, <laughs> Kurt was one of the first kids who posed, who brings a bear to school? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. That I don't know. Like a real bear? Like a live bear? Yes. Yes, it was a bear cub. I mean, it was, well, it was a, a bear baby cub. bear, but still, <laughs> could you imagine bringing a bear to school now? A bear cub? Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, uh, it is. It is Washington. So yeah. <laughs> it's not uh, L.A. Like, or New York where that would be bizarre to even have contact with one or access to one. You know. Yeah. There's wilderness near them. Yeah. I guess you have to be like, here's a bear cub. One day while you're logging, it might kill you. <laughs> well, the bear cubs are less likely to kill you than the mama it belongs to. That's true. <laughs> the subject that he was most excited about was art. And at the age of five, it was already clear that he had exceptional artistic skills. He was creating paintings that looked realistic. And again, like if you watch the montage of Heck, it actually shows some of his early works. And it's, it's not for a five-year-old, it's not bad. His creativity increasingly extended to music. Though he never took a formal piano lesson, he could pick out a simple melody by ear. Even when he was a little kid, remembers his sister Kim, he could just sit down and play something that he had heard on the radio. He was able to artistically put whatever he wanted onto paper or into music. To encourage him, Don and Wendy bought a Mickey Mouse drum set, which Kurt vigorously pounded every day after school. So... He loved these little plastic drums, like the real drums at his Uncle Chuck's house, but he liked Uncle Chuck's better since he could actually make more noise with them. Well, duh. He also enjoyed strapping on his Aunt Mary's guitar, even though it was so heavy that it made his knees buckle. He would strum it while inventing songs. That year, he brought his first record, a syrupy single by Terry Jacks called Seasons in the Sun. And I'm actually going to play that song for you now so you can hear how this might have influenced his later works. And I also love this song, so hang on. You you might actually know the song, TJ. Seasons in the Sun? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. We've known each other since we were nine or ten. Together we've climbed hills and trees. Learned of love and ABC Skinned our hearts and skinned our knees Goodbye my friend, it's hard to die When all the birds are singing in the sky Now that the spring is in the air Pretty girls are everywhere Think of me and I'll be there We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons Papa, please pray for me 
I was the black sheep of the family. You tried to teach me right from wrong. Too much wine and too much song. Wonder how I got along. Goodbye, Papa. It's hard to die. So you can kind of hear how that might have influenced him later on with like the darker tones and themes within the song and how it was kind of flipping the script on that bubblegum pop that was happening at the time. Right. It was kind of going against the grain. He also loved looking through his aunts and uncles albums. One time when he was six, he visited his Aunt Mary and was digging through her record collection Looking for a Beatles album, they were one of his favorites. Kurt suddenly cried out and ran toward his aunt in a panic. He was holding up a copy of the Beatles yesterday and today with the infamous Butcher cover, with artwork showing the band with pieces of meat on them. It made me realize how impressionable that he was at that age. I need to look that picture up. That sounds disgusting. It Yeah, it sounds gross. It reminds me of Lady Gaga's meat dress. Also disgusting. Yeah. Look, I love Lady Gaga. That was the moment where I was like, how all, like, how much do you need to clean yourself after you wear that? Like, how bad does that smell? Do you hug people? That's... Ugh, ugh. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. He was also sensitive to the increasing strain that he saw between his parents. For the first few years of his life, there wasn't much fighting in the home, but there also hasn't been much evidence of a great love affair. Like many couples who marry young, Don and Wendy were two people overwhelmed by circumstance. Their children had become the center of their lives, and what little romance had existed in the short time that they had prior to the kids had been hard to rekindle. The financial pressures daunted on. Wendy was consumed by caring for two children, and they began to argue more and yell at each other at this point in front of the kids. And that's never that's never a good mental state for the children to see their parents fighting like that. Toughen them up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> Still, there was much joy in his early childhood. Kurt called himself an extremely happy child until around the age of nine. Things just used to lay down before me, he would later recall. I didn't have any problems. There were no obstacles. In 74, the stress on the family increased when Don decided to change jobs and enter the timber industry. He knew that he eventually could make more money in timber than working at the service station. Unfortunately, the first job that he got was an entry level, paying only $4.10 an hour which was even less than he made as a mechanic. He picked up extra money by doing inventory at the mill on the weekends, and he would frequently take Kurt with him. And apparently, Kurt used to make fun of his dad's work, and Kurt would take his bike and, like, ride around the lumberyard and stuff like that. But he, looking back, he said he really enjoyed that time with his dad. Don and Wendy frequently had to borrow money to pay their bills, which is one of the main reasons that they would have all these arguments. And I mean, that's a huge thing in a marriage. Money is a huge sticking point in a relationship. Yeah, number one source of conflict. Yeah. Now, during this time, it was pretty evident that Don and Wendy's parents were different people. And it seemed like Don's parents didn't actually like Wendy because they thought that she thought that she was better than the Cobains. And the tension between the two came to a head when Leland, who was Don's father, helped him remodel the house on First Street. He helped build a fake fireplace in the living room. I don't know why it's fake. Wouldn't you want a real fireplace? And put in new countertops. But the process halted when he and Wendy started to fight. Basically, this whole thing went down where Wendy was just like, this is not how I wanted it. You're not doing it right. Could you please do it this way? Ba 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 ba. And Leland went to Don and was like, if she doesn't shut up, I'm going to stop. And Don was like, knock it off. Shut up. And that, that stopped Wendy immediately. So, uh, like his father before him, Don was strict with the children. One of Wendy's complaints was that her husband expected the kids to always behave, which we know is an impossible standard, and required Kurt to act like an adult at all times. Of course, like all children, he could be a terror. Most of his acting out incidents were minor at the time. He would write on the walls or slam doors or tease his sister, and these behaviors frequently elicited a spanking. But Don's much more common and also almost daily physical punishment was to take two fingers and thump Kurt's temple or chest. It only hurt a little, but the psychological damage was deep. That's got to be able to, like, basically he would just, you know, take his thumb and his middle finger and just thump him. 
and it doesn't hurt, but I mean that can be that can be super damaging. Right. Kurt began to retreat in the closet in his room, the kind of enclosed confined spaces that would give others panic attacks, but with this very place he sought out sanctuary. When Kurt was mature enough to believe his parents' mocking and sarcastic jokes, Don and Wendy warned him that he would get a lump of coal for Christmas if he wasn't good, particularly if he fought with his sister. And they did it. They actually left coal in his stocking. It was a joke, Don remembered. We did it every year. He got presents, but we never didn't give him presents. The humor, however, was lost on Kurt, and he told the story later in life that he claimed that one year he was promised a Starsky and Hutch toy gun, a gift that never came. Instead, he maintained that he only received a lump of coal neatly wrapped. Kurt's telling was an exaggeration, but his inner imagination, he had begun to put his own spin on the family. In February 1976, just two weeks after Kurt's ninth birthday, Wendy informed Don that she wanted a divorce. She announced this one weekend night, and she stormed off in her Camaro, leaving Don to do the explaining to the children, something that he did not excel at. So... Don and Wendy's marital conflicts increased during the last half of 1974, and her declaration took Don by surprise, as did the rest of the family. Don went into a state of denial and moved inward, a behavior that would be mirrored later in life by his son in times of crisis. Wendy had always had a strong personality and prone to occasional bouts of rage, yet I was shocked when she wanted to break up the family unit, Don said. Her main complaint was that he was increasingly involved in sports. He was a referee and a coach, in addition to playing in a couple of teams himself. In my mind, I didn't believe that it was going to happen, Don recalled. A divorce wasn't so common then. I didn't want it to happen either. She just wanted out. On March 1st, it was Don that moved out and took a room in Holcomb. He expected Wendy's anger would subside and the marriage would survive, so he rented by the week. To Don, the family represented a huge part of his identity, and his role as dad marked one of the first times that he felt like he was needed. He was crushed by the idea of divorce, remembered Stan Targus, Don's best friend. The split was complicated because Wendy's family adored Don, particularly her sister Janice and her husband Clark, who lived near the Cobains. A few of Wendy's siblings quietly wondered how she would survive financially without Don. Because remember, she was a homemaker. She was 19 when they got married, and then she just spent her life taking care of the kids. She had never, it seemed like she had never worked before. Right. On March 29th, Don was served with a summons and a petition for the disillusionment of marriage. A slew of legal documents would follow. Don frequently failed to respond in hopes that she would change her mind. And on June 9th, that's my husband's birthday, he was held at fault for not responding to Wendy's petitions. On the same day, a final settlement was granted awarding the house to Wendy, but giving Don a lien of $6,500 due whenever the house was sold. Wendy remarried. Or when Kim turned 18, Don was granted his 1965 Ford half-ton pickup and Wendy was allowed to keep the family's 1968 Camaro. Custody of the children was awarded to Wendy, but Don was charged with paying $150 per child in child support plus their medical and dental expenses and given reasonable visitation rights. To Kurt, it was an emotional holocaust. No other single event in his life had more of an effect on the shaping of his personality. He internalized the divorce as many children do. The depths of his parents' conflicts have primarily been hidden from him, and he couldn't understand the reason for their split. He thought it was his fault, Mary recalled. It was traumatic for Kurt, as he saw everything that he trusted, his security, family, his own maintenance, unravel in front of his eyes. Rather than outwardly express his anguish and grief, Kurt turned inward. That June, Kurt wrote on his bedroom wall, I hate mom. I hate dad. Dad hates mom. Mom hates dad. It simply makes you want to be sad. This was a boy who, as an infant, was so bonded to his family that he fought sleep, as Mary had written in her home economics report seven years previously, because he doesn't want to leave them. Now, through no fault of his own, he had been left. Iris Cobain, his grandmother, describes 1976 as Kurt's year in purgatory. It was hard on her physically as well. Mary recalled Kurt in the hospital during this time. She had heard from his mother that it was a result of not eating enough. I remember Kurt had been hospitalized because of malnutrition when he was 10. He told his friends that he had to drink barium and get his stomach x-rayed. It's possible that he thought it was thought to be malnutrition with the first symptoms of a stomach disorder that would plague him later in life. His mother had suffered a stomach condition in her early 20s and not long after his birth. And when I, 
Kurt first started having a stomach aches, it was assumed that I had the same irritable condition as Wendy. At the time of the divorce, Kurt also had involuntary twitching in his eyes. The family assumed that it was stress-related, and it probably was. In a 1993 interview, he elaborated, I remember feeling ashamed for some reason. I was ashamed of my parents. I couldn't face some of my friends in school anymore because I desperately wanted to have that classic, you know, typical family. Mother, father, I wanted that security, and so I resented my parents for quite a few years because of that. Cobain's parents found new partners after they divorced. Although his father promised not to remarry after meeting Jenny Westby, he did to Kurt's dismay. His father, Westby, and her two children, Mindy and James, moved into a new house together. Cobain liked Westby at first, and she gave him the maternal attention that he desired. In January 1979, uh, Jenny gave birth to a boy, Chad Cobain. This new family, which Kurt insisted was not his real one, was in stark contrast to the attention that Cobain was used to receiving as an only boy, and soon he began to express resentment toward his stepmother. Kurt would never fully forgive his father, and then Cobain's mom began dating a man who was abusive. Cobain witnessed the domestic violence inflicted upon her. One instance resulted in her being hospitalized with a broken arm. Wendy steadfastly refused to press charges, remaining completely committed to the relationship. Cobain behaved insolently toward adults during this period of his youth. I mean, but that's like being a kid. Like from the age of 9 to like 19, you are full of angst and resentment. Yeah, he actually began to bully another boy at school. Such misconduct eventually caused his father and Westby to take him to a therapist who concluded that he would benefit from a single-family environment. Both sides of the family attempted to bring his parents back together, but to no avail. I mean, Wendy just did not want to be married to Don. Like, she was done. Well, I thought that was over already, and he's moved on to the new chick. Well, they're trying to get the two back together so that he, like, at least to the point where they can talk to each other. And that's just not happening. I took this out, but Wendy, Wendy was stubborn. And so when she was done with something, she was done with it. And she right. was done with Don. Like, there was just no... Nothing he could have said or have done would have made her change her mind. On June 28, 1979, Cobain's mother granted full custody to his father, which might have helped, but Cobain's teenage rebellion quickly became overwhelming for his father, who placed his son in the care of family and friends. While living with a born-again Christian family of his friend Jesse Reed, he had become a devout Christian and regularly attended church services. He had later renounced Christianity, engaging in what was described as anti-God rants. The song Lithium is about his experience while living with the Reed family, and religion remained an important part of his personal life and beliefs. And so do you know what one of my personal beliefs is? What's that? Free stuff. Oh, yeah? Yep. Free stuff? Free stuff. Great segue, man. <laughs> I told you, we're the queens of segue. We are not the queens of Segway. We are the jesters of Segway. That is true. <laughs> Do you know what's even better than like normal free stuff, especially during quarantine? Sexy free stuff. Sexy free stuff. Woo. Woo. And do you know who gives you that sexy free stuff? Could it possibly be adamandeve.com? Yes, it is adamandeve.com. And you can uh, actually select one item for 50% off. And then Adam and Eve loads on the free stuff. So enter code RRHeaven. Where? At checkout. And then you get 10 free gifts. You get something for him, something for her, and a third item both of you will enjoy. And then you get six free spicy movies and free shipping. That is so much stuff. It's a lot of stuff. It is a lot of stuff. That's code... RR Heaven for your 10 free gifts, 50% off, and free shipping at adamandeve.com. So, after leaving the realm of sexy and heading back to Kurt. Back to, uh, back to Seattle. Back to Seattle. Which is also, it could be a sexy town, right? I guess. Maybe. I don't know. I've never been there. Kurt was not into sports. I mean, that's... I wasn't into sports when I was growing up. I, I, was, I was a very fragile child, so I understand that. Did you play sports? Yep. What did you play? Uh, I was softball and swimming. 
I actually, for a little bit in middle school, uh, was part of the swim club because it was middle school. We weren't didn't have a swim team yet, but we still had meets and whatever. So I set a record for a little while um, for the breaststroke that it took one of my friends until sophomore year of high school to beat it. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. that's a, I never set any records. <laughs> well, for our school, I mean. Yeah. It wasn't like um, a national record or anything like that. It was just for our school. I just did PE. I was just having fun. <laughs> I didn't even I wasn't even trying. I was just going. I was just trying to win the race. My, and I my most parents, definitely did. My parents wouldn't let me do sports because I was so little. And so they let me do chorus, but any anything else I wasn't really allowed to do. Which is I mean, it's fine. So what if you're little? You can be scrappy. <laughs> oh, I was definitely scrappy. They just wouldn't let me participate in any sports. Plus, I was acting at that point, so if I went to an audition with a black eye, wouldn't have been a good look. Yeah, okay. So Kurt actually enrolled in the junior high school wrestling team by the insistence of his father. And surprisingly, he was actually a pretty good wrestler, but he hated the experience. And because of the ridicule... Yeah, I can't really he, see him being a wrestler. I can't either. But apparently, he wasn't bad at it. I mean, there are skinnier wrestlers, like well, there, there are those weight classes. It doesn't have anything to do with the weight class, just him and his personality uh i don't know that i could see that but there's plenty of things that people are good at but that they don't like or want to do i agree with that even if you're small maybe like if you since he was like bullying kids maybe it was just a good way for him to get out of his anger that's true it's an outlet yeah kind of like at the end of mean girls where uh regina starts playing lacrosse yeah because of the ridicule that he endured from his teammates and the coach he allowed himself to be pinned in an attempt to sadden his father. Later, his father enlisted him on the Little League baseball team where Cobain would intentionally strike out to avoid playing. Cobain befriended a gay student at the school who had suffered from bullying from peers who concluded that he was gay. In an interview, he said that he liked being associated with a gay identity because he did not like people. And when they thought that he was gay, they would leave him alone. He said, I started being really proud of the fact that I was gay enough that I wasn't. Uh, his friend tried to kiss him and Cobain backed away, explaining to his friend that he was not gay, but remained friends with him. In a 1993 interview with The Advocate, Cobain claimed that he was gay in spirit and probably could have been bisexual. He also stated that he used to spray paint God is gay on pickup trucks in the Aberdeen area. Police records show that Cobain was arrested for spray painting the phrase, Ain't got know-how whatchamacallit on other vehicles. In one of his journals, he states, I'm not gay, although I wish I were just to piss off the homophobes. Cobain often drew in classes. He would draw objects, including those associated with human anatomy, which, like, if you look at the covers of the albums, especially, like, in utero, you'll see that that kind of bleeds through into his musical career as well. He would give caricature assignments for an art course. Cobain drew Michael Jackson, but was told by his teacher that the image was inappropriate for the school hallways. I wish I could find that picture, but I could not. He then drew an image of the then-president Ronald Reagan seen as unflattering, as attested by several of Cobain's classmates and family members. The first concert that he attended was Sammy Hagar and Quarter Flash that was held at the Seattle Convention Center in 1983. Cobain, however, claimed that his first concert that he ever attended was the Melvins and that he wrote prolifically in his journal of the experience. As a teenager living in Montesano, Washington, Cobain eventually found escape through the thriving Pacific Northwest punk scene, going to punk shows in Seattle. And remember, we were talking about how grunge is like a marriage of metal and punk and all those different kind of influences that you wouldn't necessarily think about with grunge but he was he was deeply immersed in that scene during his second year in high school Cobain began to live with his mother in Aberdeen two weeks prior to graduation he actually dropped out of Aberdeen high school realizing that he didn't have enough credits to graduate his mother gave him a choice find employment or leave after one week Cobain found his clothes and other belongings packed away in boxes Feeling banished by his own mother, Cobain stayed with friends, occasionally sneaking back into his mother's basement. 
Cobain also complained that during periods of homelessness, he lived under a bridge over the Wishka River, an experience that inspired the song Something in the Way. However, Nirvana bassist Novoselic later said, We hung out there, but you couldn't live on those muddy banks with the tides coming up and down. That was his own revisionism. In late 1986, Cobain moved into an apartment, borrowing $200 from his mom and paying the rent by working at the Polynesian Resort, a coastal resort approximately 20 miles north of Aberdeen. During this period, he was traveling frequently to Olympia, Washington to go to rock concerts. And I'm sorry. Music seems like it was so, so important to him, but th- this is like not a isolated event. Like when you're poor and you love something, you will go without something else to make that love possible. Yeah. That's like the year I bought my guitar with my tax return instead of the couch that I was going to buy. I just stayed on my futon. Huh. I had a futon. I didn't need a couch. I just was going to get one so I could finally have a couch and be an adult. And then I found a guitar that I wanted instead. Totally reasonable. I thought it was. But music is your life. Mm-hmm. So you, you had a priority of getting the, the guitar over a couch. So, I mean, like, totally understandable. Yep. Uh, during one of his visits, Cobain formed a relationship with Tracy Miranda. The couple had a close relationship, but it was one that was often strained with financial difficulties same old story, and Cobain's absence when touring. Tracy supported the couple by working at the cafeteria of the Seattle-Tacoma airport, often stealing food. So she would steal food during her shifts. During that time with Tracy, Kurt spent most of his time sleeping into the late evening, watching television, and concentrating on art projects. Her insistence that he get a job caused arguments that influenced uh, Cobain to write about a girl, which was featured on the Nirvana album, Bleach. Tracy is credited with having taken the cover photo for the album. She didn't become aware of the song about a girl being written about her until years after his death. So she didn't even realize that song was about her. So Kurt often said that he was a scapegoat in high school, but not in the sense that people would pick on him all the time. They didn't pick on me or beat me up because I was already so withdrawn at the time. So people just like blame stuff on him. And that sucks. So when he was in high school, his love of art actually kind of bled over into filmmaking. And one of his Super 8 shorts was called Kirk Commits Bloody Suicide, where he pretends to cut his wrist with a crushed soda can. I have suicide genes, he told a schoolmate. That's and I think not you can a funny find joke. It. No, it's not. But it, the, that statement was true. It was in his genes to commit suicide. Two of his fraternal great uncles had fatally shot themselves. A third great uncle died of a cerebral hemorrhaging after toppling down a staircase after a night of binge drinking. His maternal great grandfather stabbed himself in the stomach in front of his family and then later perished in a mental hospital. So like... See, but that's the thing. I don't think it's suicide. Maybe suicidal tendencies... Maybe the mental issues that cause it or can be in aggravate it, like the thought, you know, but it's not suicide is not genetic. But mental illness can but mental be. illness. Yes, that's what I'm saying. So suicide, suicide is not genetic. Suicide genes is not genetic. It's not a thing. But like the mental illness that can bring it about. Yeah, sure. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what Kurt is thinking of is that it's it's in his bloodline. Like the whole mental illness thing is just in his bloodline. So maybe that's what he meant by suicidal genes is the people that were mentally ill commit suicide. Therefore, he wasn't thinking of that angle of the mental illness could be in his genes, but taking it to its base level of like, this is the end result. So, I mean, he's also a kid and might not have a complete grasp on what it, that that takes Kurt told a friend after deciding that his future was not in art, but in rock and roll. And not classic rock, not metal, not rock, but the kind of rock expresses his entire childhood. The manic energy, the isolation, the rejection, the hurt, and the rage. And so we we now start seeing that like marriage of rock and punk with the emotional expressionism that he's going to help spearhead. I was so antisocial, I was almost insane, he told Guitar World. I felt so different and so crazy that people just left me alone. I wouldn't have been surprised if they had voted me most likely to kill everyone at a high school dance. 
You sound frustrated. Yeah, he just sounds like a punk-ass kid. I'm sorry. Super annoying. I think it was the time that he grew up in. We were all moody, bitchy teenagers at some point, and some people just express it in a different way, and I think that what that's how Kurt does. Like, either you can try to outwardly be well-adjusted and seem like you're perfect, or just go in the complete opposite direction and embrace your angst and your fears and things like that. And I think that's what Kirk kind of did was he just embraced that weirdo that was inside of him. Nobody says you have to always be perfect all the time either. Like, oh, no, maybe his parents did, but I don't know. Yeah. Other ways than what I don't know. I took a lot out about his parents because it kind of is reflective later on. But yeah, I mean, what he felt like in his childhood does reflect the kind of kid he would become later. Because when his parents were married, you know, up until the age of nine, his life was fine. He was a normal kid. And then his parents got divorced. And he is just one of those cases of those kids that take divorce so hard. And he loses respect for his mom and his dad. And he rejects that idea of the nuclear family and things like that. So, I mean, like, I get where he's coming from. I might not agree with it, but I totally understand. He just took angst to the nth degree. (sighs) Sure. Like I say, I'm just... He may have lost respect for his parents, but I'm losing major respect for him throughout this episode. Because at the same time, like, I don't care how sensitive you are. I don't care that you went through divorce and, like, shitty childhood. At some point, you figure it out. Like, come on. Enough. It's not like my life was all sunshine and roses either. But that's why I have such a strong opinion about it. It's like you rise up. You get it together. No matter how sensitive you are. Like, the world is not out to get you enough. You just sound like a spoiled kid at that point. Yeah. I mean, kids also take divorce differently. At age 19, so he is an adult by now. He is an adult. Yeah. He's 19 years old. Yeah. I'm not buying that he's a kid anymore. No. You're 19 years old. Yeah. Well, he took out frustrations by spray painting buildings. Um, In May of 1986, Cobain was arrested for spray painting. Ain't got no whatchamacallit on a building in Aberdeen. There actually is a mugshot out there uh, from Kurt, from Kurt's arrest, uh, and a picture of the old graffiti that was possibly tribute to the crunchy peanut butter bar, which I actually love whatchamacallits, so, you know. It probably was. Also, I was more impressed that the spray painting actually spelled whatchamacallit correctly, so, I mean, good for him. Um, Like I was saying before, there were rumors that he tagged that that same building with God is gay. But allegedly, the police reported that it said that I ain't got no whatchamacallit. In a 1993 interview with The Advocate, Kurt claimed that he tagged pickup trucks with that phrase. Well, yeah, you mentioned that already. Yeah. And at the same time around his arrest, Cobain was also arrested a second time for trespassing on the roof of a warehouse in Aberdeen. And, and shockingly enough, that is the extent of Kurt's criminal record. So just the spray painting of the building and trespassing. The official timeline on the website, the Nirvana website, states that the fall of 1985 was the year that Kurt met Chris. And that's Chris Novoselic, who is one of the members of Nirvana. They met while attending Aberdeen High School. The pair became friends while frequenting the practice space of the Melvins. He liked punk rock music, and that piqued my interest, said Novoselic in the clip. I've noticed what a good artist he was. He was working at the time as a janitor, so just a step back. Cobain had to drop out of high school because he didn't have enough credits to graduate, just two weeks shy, and so he actually took a job as a janitor at the high school. He was working at the time as a janitor, but he would always have to do some kind of art, usually defacing something. He never had, like, idle hands. It just came out of him. He had to express himself, and that was a quote from Novoselic. Novoselic recalls that he was 18 or 19 when they met. Cobain was a year younger, and he was already showing flashes of restlessness, an uncompromising creative spirit that would later help make him a star. (laughs) Cobain wanted to form a band with Novoselic, but he did not respond for a long period of time. Cobain gave him a demo tape of his project. You're going to, I'm going to spew out a ton of possible band names for Nirvana. And you are going to either cringe or love it, TJ. All right, This band was called Fecal Matter. (laughs) Okay. 
Three years after the two first met, Novoselic notified Cobain that he had finally listened to the Fecal Matter demo reel and suggested that they start a group. Their first band, The Sellouts, was a Creedence Clearwater Revival tribute band. They recruited Bob McFadden on drums. Before I start naming off band members, have you ever seen the movie This Is Spinal Tap? Yes. You well, know the whole partially, yeah. Do you know the running gag in Spinal Tap is the amount of drummers that they've got? Oh, no. Because, like, one explodes, one quits. Like, it's a oh, running I guess, gag. Within, kind of. Yeah, it's a running gag within the film. Um, by the time Nirvana locks down their final lineup, they will have gone through five different drummers. Well, all right then. Yeah. So uh, they recruited Bob McFadden on drums, but after a month, that project fell apart. In early 87, Cobain and Novoselic recruited drummer Adam Burkhardt. They practiced material from Cobain's Fecal Matter Master Tape, but started writing new material after forming. And then they had their very first gig. And I'm going to kind of like whisk around this, but basically they, in 1987, the band drove out of Aberdeen and they were headed to this place called Raymond. And this guy, Ryan Ager, had become their first manager and he kept nagging Kurt that he needed to play live sets. Like he needed to go out and play in public. And he kept yeah. nagging Kurt, nagging Kurt. Finally, he booked the band without telling Kurt, without getting Kurt's permission. And so Ryan actually got a panel van from his job, which was a, a carpet place, and loaded the whole band up. And so they had to like wedge themselves between the rugs. And there was... There were no windows, no nothing. So they were in this carpet, like a literal carpet van, heading to Raymond. And when they got to the place, it was a private house. And of course, like, you guys are, feel free to look up the address. I'm not going to give the address out. But they got to the place and Novoselic was not wearing any shoes. And Kurt was wearing a t-shirt of the Munsters. And he looked at the people at the party. And the party people looked at, at them and they were like... Why was he not wearing any shoes? I tried to find out why, but I could not find out why he was not wearing any. Who does that? I don't know. But it, gets, but it gets crazier. Um, there were all these teenagers there, and those kids were wearing, like, Led Zeppelin t-shirts and had mullet haircuts, and, you know, Chris was barefoot, and... It took a while for the band to arrange their gear, and at that time, they didn't really integrate with their host. Uh, he didn't speak one word, said Ken Madden of Kurt. He had his hair down, and it was kind of greasy, and it was in his face. And like I said, I'm not going to bore you on the details of this concert, but needless to say, it got a little crazy. So Chris broke into the bathroom as a girl was using the bathroom and went into the medicine cabinet and found a jar of fake Halloween blood and like spread it all over his chest and then got duct tape and covered up his nipples. So there was that. And um, they played and people kept screaming at them. And so Shelly, who was playing with them, screamed, acid, I want acid. And Ryan was yelling for them to play some covers. And this is a quote from him. He, Ryan, which was their manager, said, play anything. I'm sick of you guys acting dumb. So blankety blank, you are so dumb. So needless to say, it might not have gone as well as they can hope. I can only describe it as an, as an extremely odd getaway where basically they just grabbed all their stuff and threw it into the van and they started going down the gravel road while like slamming the doors and so I think somebody was like on top of the van and it was just a really weird getaway. So it was, it was, a, hard, it was a hard gig for them. So, uh, and it was so bad that... They they didn't play in public for about three to four months again. So, but they were looking forward to their future, knowing that like the first gig they ever played was so off the wall, rambunctious, crazy. And um, something really cool happened in 2015. A teenager from Woodland, Washington showed off some never-before-seen photos of Nirvana's first concert in 1987. So this girl was going through one of her dad's books, and her name is Maggie Polakua. I'm butchering her last name. I'm sorry. She was going through her dad's copy of Kurt Cobain's biography when she came across a photo 
of Cobain playing in her dad's old house in Raymond, Washington. She posted the photo of Cobain on her Twitter account, and the story was picked up by Time and Rolling Stone magazine. I just thought it was really cool, so I took a picture and I posted it onto Twitter. Not everyone's dad gets to play with Kurt Cobain, Maggie said. I didn't know that it was from their first concert that they ever had. I just thought they were playing together. In Chapter seven's, in chapter 7 of Cobain's biography, it talks about the group's first show, a show that took place in Tony, the owner of the house. He was a part of a group called Black Ice in high school and was managed by the same person who managed Nirvana in 87, which was the Ryan Gent. Tony remembers the conversation with his manager that led to the first gig. He said, hey, do you mind if they come down to one of your parties just to get their feet wet? He said, I said, sure, anytime. He said, what about Friday? I said, bring them down. We're always there. Little did Tony know that the group was going to become one of the most well-known bands in history. I remember coming home one day and my wife had MTV on and that video Smells Like Teen Spirit came on and I said, I think I know those guys, he said. Tony said that the picture of Nirvana's first show had been sitting in his copy of Cobain's biography for years and was amazed at what happened. It was pretty crazy. It had only been a couple days and now it's all over the world, Maggie added. So, I mean, that's kind of cool because they gave the, the world some never-before-seen photos of Nirvana, and those are online, and they are, they're exactly what you imagine they are. They're 1987 photos. <laughs> so in 1987, Cobain wrote Polly, and I'm just going to play a little bit of that in just a second. Um, he wrote that in 87 after reading an article about the torture and rape of a 14-year-old girl. Cobain chose to write the song from the perspective of the girl inventing the name Polly to aid in a consistent, innocent-sounding bird metaphor. After hearing the song, Bob Dylan said of Cobain, that kid has heart. So I'm just going to play a little bit of Polly right now. Polly wants a cracker Think I should get off her first Think she wants some water To put out the blowtorch Isn't me Having seed Let me clip Dirty wings Let me take a ride Cut yourself Want some help Please myself Got some rope Haven't told Promise you Heaven true Let me take a ride Cut yourself Once a mouth Please myself So you can see the beginnings of Nirvana in that song. And it's so simple and it's not polished and it's not really mixed and it's kind of dirty and I kind of like it. Well, yeah, it's a good song. This is the part I was saying you're probably going to appreciate. Uh, during initial months, the band went through a series of names including Fecal Matter, Skid Row, and Ted Ed Fred. The group settled on Nirvana because according to Cobain, I wanted a name that was kind of beautiful or nice and pretty instead of mean or raunchy, a punk name like the Angry Samoans. Novoselic and Cobain moved to Tacoma and to Olympia and temporarily lost contact with Burkhard. They instead practiced with Del Grover of the Melvins, which the, the Melvins constantly come up in this. And Nirvana recorded its first demo in January 1988. It was a 10-song demo with the godfather of grunge, legendary Seattle producer Jack Indino. Sub Pop co-head honchos John Poman heard the tape and offered to put Nirvana basically on the label and put out a single and the band accepted. In early 1988, Crover moved to San Francisco but recommended that Dave Foster be his replacement on the drums. So there's another drummer. Uh, Foster's tenure with... How many is that now? <clears throat> I think this is three. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> yeah, by the end they have five. So... <laughs> I guess that is like Spinal Tap. Uh, I guess so. Foster's tenure with Nirvana only lasted a few months. During his stint in jail, 
He was replaced by Burkhard, who left again after telling Cobain that he was too hungover to practice one day. That seems like a valid excuse to quit a very successful band or future successful band. Yeah, no, can't practice one day because I'm hungover, so I guess I quit. Yep, bye. <laughs> Peace out. Cobain and Novoselic put an ad in a Seattle newspaper, uh, The Rocket, seeking a replacement drummer, but they received no satisfactory responses. Meanwhile, a mutual friend introduced them to drummer, to drummer Chad Channing, and the three musicians agreed to jam together. Channing continued to jam with Cobain and Novoselic, although according to Channing, they never actually said, okay, you're in. Channing played his first show with Nirvana in May. Now, I bring this up because I went on the official Nirvana website and looked up the Nirvana timeline. And it was really funny, the things that they thought were important that they needed to notate on their timeline. So according to their website, on October 30th, 1988, Kurt smashed his first guitar. Okay. I mean, I guess if you're young and that's what rock stars do in your head, then I guess you would note that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Nirvana released their first single a cover of Shocking Blue's Love Buzz in November of 1988 on the Seattle independent record label Sub Pop. And now you probably know Shocking Blue, but not because of Love Buzz, but because of their, their classic song, Venus. You know that song? Uh, I'm not sure. She's got it. Yeah, baby, she Oh, got yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Yeah. That reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 in February of 1970 and sold 7.5 million copies. And then in 1986, Rama's cover also topped the charts. Uh, Love Buzz, however, did neither of those things for anyone. The single Love Buzz can be found on some rare collection sites for like close to $2,700. I actually looked up what it cost for first pressing today. And the highest that I found on eBay was $5,100. And 51 people were watching it. All right, then. So, I mean, that's, I'd call that pretty darn good now. But I guess it's a piece of history. I don't yeah. think a lot of a lot of copies were pressed. Uh, they did their first interview ever with John Robb in Sounds, who also made the release single of the week. The following month, the band began to record its debut album, Bleach, with local producer Jack Indino. And Bleach was influenced by the kind of dredge rock of the Melvins and Mudhoney, the 1980s punk rock, and the 1970s heavy metal of Black Sabbath. The money for the recording sessions for Bleach are listed as $606.17. Okay. Like, that's literally nothing. Yeah, that's really cheap. But also, like, I think that that amount of money that they spent can be seen in the quality of Bleach because it's not mixed perfectly. The the guitars sound kind of dirty. It's not polished. It's not perfect. And I think that's part of what that grunge sound was, that they just... But if that's what they were going for anyways... Yeah, don't make it perfect. On the album sleeve, uh, which was supplied by... It's it's marked that Jason Everman, who subsequently bought into the band as the second guitarist, he is thanked on that sleeve. What do you sleeve. mean he bought into the band? <clears throat> he, he was actually the one that paid for the album to be produced. Well, all right then. Yeah. He didn't actually play on the album, but he did receive credit on Bleach because according to Novoselic, they wanted to make him feel more at home in the band. Uh, Just prior to the album release, Nirvana became the first band to sign an extended contract with Sub Pop. Well, and if they, if he paid for it, he should get some credit on it. Oh yeah, definitely. I think even if he didn't play on it, you know. I think he played on one song. Well, see, then there you go. Now, the name of the actual album, Bleach, might have come from a couple different sources. Uh, One was because Kurt, of course, had worked as a janitor at his high school in Aberdeen, so and they would clean with bleach. But the other was he started doing heroin. Oh, yeah. He started doing heroin, and so he would actually soak his dirty needles in bleach. I mean, I'd rather believe that it came from his janitor job than his heroin habit, but sadly, let's be honest, it probably was the latter. Yeah, unfortunately. And that's, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I had four books on Kurt Cobain. The main one that I was working from is a book called Heavier Than Heaven, and it's a great book, but I, unless I pulled it from an article, 
I didn't explicitly state that he was in the process of using heroin. So I am missing a huge kind of chunk of information about Kurt. And the thing is, literally, there are books and books and books full of information. And some books bring incredibly new information, like this new information that I had never heard before. And it's just, it's too much. Like, I, ca- I couldn't get all this information in. So, you know, that's just the books. Not to mention the three major documentaries, the VH1 Behind the Music, all of the newspaper articles that are online right now. It's just so much information. I almost had information overload about what to put into this. But if I if I put it all in, we could literally make a podcast just about Nirvana. And actually, one of our former guests did. See, there you go. Adam Todd Brown has a podcast, but it's uh, he did one on Nirvana. He did, I think, a four-part series on Nirvana. So <laughs> go check that out if you want to support. Uh, I mean, it'd be easy enough. Yeah. Friends of the show. <laughs> there's just there's just so much information out there. It'd be really easy. Yeah. And that is where we will pick up next time. Because I have so much about that. Downer. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for checking this episode out. Uh, we hope to see you guys on the next episode. Make sure that you, uh, you know, if you're stuck in quarantine and need fun things to do, you can uh, use our code RRHeaven on adamandeve.com and get uh, 50% off one item and then 10 free gifts. Also check out the other podcasts on the Pantheon Network. That's The Muses. Uh, that's The Rock and Roll Archaeology. Uh, there the is The show that started it all. Yeah, Check out those. I know that we're all stuck inside, so why don't you guys check those out? It's a lot of fun. And that's it for today. Our social stuff is that uh, if you guys would like to donate to our Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can find us on Twitter at rockandrollLT. Our Facebook is rockandrollheavenpod. Instagram is rockandrollheavenLT. Still not saying the website. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenLT at gmail.com. If I said that too fast, it will be in the show notes. Uh, Again, thank you guys for checking us out. We will see you next time. Keep rocking in the free world. TJ. Yeah. Take us out. Okay, bye. Bye.
The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 